Hey everyone, you're listening to the Parasong Podcast with myself, Andrew Kleger, and my co-host, Jared McKenna. And for our first episode, we're joined today by pastor and author Brian Zond to discuss his pilgrimage into a life that embraces nonviolence and love of enemies. And we look at the dynamic of inner and outer peace, or how the contemplative life and inner transformation informs our peacemaking actions and the way that we work for justice. Welcome here, uh, Brian, and and uh, thanks for agreeing to be our first guest on this uh, this podcast. Um, it it really means a lot to us that you've uh, agreed to do this to to be oh, it's here. It's my privilege, us. Andrew. I like you. I like Jared, and so you know, let's just sit around and talk. Yeah, why not? Right. <laughs> um. And so uh, to kick off our conversation then, uh, I wonder if, uh, if you could tell us a little bit about your journey into peacemaking and embrace of nonviolence and loving our enemies, some of the, the signposts along the way, the things that made you think through these issues more deeply, um, that sort of thing. Um, yeah, I can tell the story in a lot of different ways. You know how it is. I mean, to, to tell a story is to tell a life. And... Um, I think I want to start, I want to say I had a very dramatic encounter with Jesus when I was 15 years old. And overnight, I went from being the high school Led Zeppelin freak to the high school Jesus freak. And in reading the Sermon on the Mount, well, isn't it obvious that Jesus calls us to an ethic of nonviolence. I mean, just, you know, you open the book, you read it, and you go, okay. And so that was my position when I was in high school and maybe a little bit into college. I just thought, okay, uh, waging war is incompatible with following Jesus. And then I got taught. (laughs) (laughs) And it it wasn't that someone took me aside and, you know, formally said, you know, here's just war theory, etc., it was really just over a, over a time, over a period of time, the Jesus movement kind of funneled me into the charismatic renewal, which I describe as being good until it wasn't. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> the, the charismatic renewal then led me into maybe just, you know, aspects of word of faith and, and that sort of thing that is all tied with religious right and nationalism and all of that sort of thing. And so it happened very slowly over, you know, a good long while until, yeah, I would say that my, my um, identity as an American was all mixed up. And I'd somehow, and I always, you know, I I like to think I'm smarter than this, but I don't know that I ever really (laughs) took time to think about it. I just sort of, I was too busy trying to build a church, if you know what I mean. Yeah. To to Mm. pause and think about these sorts of things. Mm. And I don't know that I ever would have uh, until I had a very dramatic mystical experience. Beginning in 2004, in some ways beginning in 2000, I really had to begin to rethink a lot of things. Uh, But then it really accelerated in 2004. Sometime after that, I was sitting in prayer one day. Uh, sitting with Jesus, as I call it. I, I would later understand that what I sort of intuitively 
began to practice as sitting with Jesus was an aspect of what the church has long called contemplative prayer. But no one had ever taught me this. I just sort of, I just sort of grew into it. And I'm sitting with Jesus. That is, I have had a time of prayer, and now I'm in silence, acknowledging the presence of the Lord without words. And completely out of the blue, out of nowhere, I recalled an incident in my life from all the way back in 1991. It was replayed in my memory like an incriminating surveillance video. Hmm. And what I remember, and I almost want to say it differently, what I, what I was shown, uh, it was sort of, it's like Ebenezer Scrooge being shown aspects from his yeah. past. I saw in January of 1991, as America was getting ready to launch the first Gulf War, I remembered how excited I was. And this is pre-internet, really. And so I had the radio on in my study, um, trying to follow up. And I couldn't wait to get home. Because there was going to be a war that night. It was going to be on TV, and Wolf Blitzer was going to be talking about it. And I was just so very excited. I mean, very similar to you might feel about a big sporting event, you know, the Super Bowl or wow. like that. And, in fact, I ordered – I had we, and I had some friends over. We ordered pizza. We watched a war on TV. Uh, America won, and I was entertained. Okay, so – now it's maybe like 2005, and this, this incident that I promise you I had entirely forgotten. I could easily have imagined I would go the rest of my life and not remembered. But in sitting with Jesus, it was like I had arrived at the judgment seat of Christ. And Jesus spoke to me and said, that was your worst sin. And it crushed me. This really was a um, Damascus road experience. You know, the, yeah. Saul of Tarsus wouldn't describe what happened on the Damascus Road as finding a new religion or something like that. I wasn't finding a new religion. I was seeing that how my religious faith was so compatible with violence was a terrible sin. And so mm. I was converted to Christ-informed nonviolence in that instant. It happened just like that. Hmm. So it, it wasn't a growth into it, even though I had held that position originally, just as a, as a young, young follower of Jesus. Uh, but then I had lost it. And, I, and I, I'm, willing to, I'm willing to take the responsibility for that, but I sort of want to stress that was just part of the milieu of American charismatic evangelicalism that I was a part of. We simply somehow believed that God... Uh, would bless America's wars and et cetera. Until I had mm -hmm. that while sitting with Jesus and was converted away from the idea that war is compatible with following Christ. So, so that, that, that's a little background. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's, it's a lot of what I tell. I tell that story in the beginning of a farewell to Mars, which sort of both documents my own journey, but then also is where I unpack some of my peace theology. DZ, one of the things that impressed me so much about A Farewell to Mars is how confessional it is. I mean, even in the subtitle, um, an evangelical 
pastor's journey to the gospel of peace and and the fact that you shared that experience which you know it would have been very easy for a lot of people to edit out those kind of details um and yet you choose to have it right in the center of it and i often um tell people that i think a farewell to mars is one of the uh, best primers for anybody wanting to um, explore uh, Rene Girard's work. And one of the things we'd be interested to um, have you speak to is on this journey that you are on out of this experience of, um, of, of prayer and intimacy with God, what, what fellow travellers um, who are a couple of steps ahead of you on the journey have you found helpful? What frameworks um, uh, uh, what uh, particular people have you have you read and be mentored from in person or afar um, that have provided uh, more theology and more frameworks and uh, um, help build a, a new wineskin for what you're experiencing in prayer? Theologically, I would uh, I think of three people right offhand. Probably first, at least in my own journey, was. Uh, John Howard Yoder, and particularly his book, The Politics of Jesus. Uh, I can't remember how I first became alerted to that book, but, but I, re I, re I do remember when I sat down to begin to read it. I just looked at the cover and I thought, oh boy, this is going to change me. I just know it is. <laughs> hmm. It did, but, but, I, but I, was, I was approaching, I was ready to be saved, you know, if you understand what I'm saying. I was ready to have my mind renewed. Hmm. And that book was, you know, there are some books that come along, if, if read at the right time, they're a game changer. That certainly was for me. Uh, later, Stanley Hauerwas, and I, and I don't know that I would point to any one book, I would just say all of his stuff really began to give me vocabulary uh, to talk about um, Jesus and, and the message of peace and nonviolence and how war is in the waging of war is incompatible with following Jesus. And then um, finally, Rene Girard, which again was another that was huge. And, and I don't know what our listeners think about Girard. There's all kinds of opinions, I suppose. Uh, it's, it's hard for me not to think of him as the most important thinker of the 20th century. Now, I don't expect the masses to recognize that yet, but I tend to tell people, I think Rene Girard is as unknown today as he's ever going to be. I think his work is going to continue to grow and become more and more important. And I don't remember even which book. I think I started with the Girard Reader and then very quickly mm -hmm. devoured all of his books. And then there was nothing left to do but make a pilgrimage to go see the man himself. And so I went out to Stanford and, and spent a day in his home, and he couldn't have been more gracious, and that's a, a, a very fond memory. Hmm. So those three stand out. Uh, but but those, those, are, those are theologians that I found after I had already had this conversion, this born-again-again again moment. So um, it's a little bit, you know, I mean, nobody taught me um, the Jesus way is nonviolence, except, mm. this sounds terrible, it sounds like Paul, though, but Jesus, Jesus convinced yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. And then I began to say, okay, well, let's, let's see what people have been saying about this. 
let me become now acquainted with who some of the best thinkers and theologians on this subject are. And then I began to explore them. But, but they, they were already speaking to me as, as one who was converted. Mm-hmm. So, so following mm-hmm. your, your mystical experience, you sought out these authors yeah. um, to kind of explain what happened to you in a sense, I guess, or, right. or what Jesus yeah, meant. Right. Especially his book, Jesus and the Victory of God, was also influential mm-hmm. and helpful around mm-hmm. that time. Okay. So you, you've already touched on this with um, your mystical experience, but one of the things I, I want to discuss with all of our guests is uh, the inner transformation of a peacemaker and how this interior world shapes our actions and shapes our behavior. Um, so can you speak to the importance of interior peace and, and uh, inner transformation in your own life um, and how you've, you've maybe thought through and, and practiced this dynamic of peacemaking uh, and incorporated it into uh, the more practical intellectual side of peacemaking, that, that inner transformation. It's absolutely vital. I mean, mm-hmm. without that, it's merely an academic exercise. Yeah. Um, the reason I was, I mean, so I attribute... Uh, midlife conversion to the Jesus way of peace to a mystical experience. But that begs the question, well, why didn't you have that mystical experience when you were 25 or 30 or 35? You know, why Mm -hmm. so late in life? Well, I think the answer is, is I was now beginning to have, I was beginning to practice forms of prayer that opened me up to those kind of possibilities. That is, first Mm -hmm. I was using liturgies of prayer, so I wasn't in charge of all my own praying. Mm -hmm. I was entrusting Mm -hmm. my soul to prayers that come from traditions that are much wiser than I could ever be on my own. Mm -hmm. And then practicing a form of contemplation that I simply call sitting with Jesus, which is as advertised. That's about what it is. (laughs) And and then something happened. I certainly, I don't, I can't, it's hard for me to imagine that I would have come to a place of peace theology by losing an argument. Mm-hmm. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, I, yeah. I, I, think, I think I would have dug my heels in and argued more yeah. fervently. Um, so it, it was, it was by beginning to tend to my soul in some wise ways involving prayer and liturgy and contemplation that opened me up to that. Um, And of course, I don't need to tell you two that um, if you preach Jesus as the Prince of Peace, you're going to encounter a lot of unpeaceable people. Uh, (laughs) People are going to lash out at you about that. And so if you're going to do that, you better have practices that can continue to ground your soul. I mean, you can't be, I, I pray this prayer every day. I pray, Lord, help me to be a peaceable voice of peace, drawing your church in America away from its idolatrous allegiance to nationalism, militarism, violence, guns, and war. I pray that every day. I've prayed it for 10 years. Um, but notice how, notice how the prayer is formed that I might be a peaceable mm-hmm. voice of peace. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I could, if I'm not praying 
if I'm not tending to my soul wisely, I could easily become an angry voice of peace. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, what's the point of that? How does that work? Um, you think about, you think about 1960s in America and in other parts around the world where there was a, suddenly there was this counterculture movement. The way I think of it is this, you have, you have a generation that went off to the two world wars or a couple of generations. And uh, you have this, you have this horrific second world war, world war, where what, what I forgot the numbers now, but something like, you know, a hundred and some million people around the world die. Mm-hmm. Uh, then exhausted, they return home, try to forget about it and start having babies, the baby boom. And so you have these baby boomers that are growing up in the 1950s. And then by the time they're about 12, 13, 14, 15, they're just be about old enough to go, wait a minute. Are you telling me that 20 years ago, there was a world war that killed 100 million people? And we have nuclear weapons that now have the capacity to kill the whole planet? And... Mm freaked out and they began to protest and they began to say there has to be another way, but it wasn't sustained. Um, I always say the hippies weren't wrong in imagining a better way of peace. They were wrong in not finding a better Messiah than the Beatles. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, but think, but think about it. So, so here's, here's, uh, Here's a group of teenagers, and it's 1968, and they are staging a peace protest at a nuclear weapons manufacturing plant or something like that. And they're able to sustain that for what? Six months, a year. And pretty soon they just go on with their lives, and now they're selling insurance or whatever. Uh, but I know Benedictine nuns that are now in their 80s, mm-hmm. and they are still at it. still advocating for the way of peace. Uh, They didn't burn out. They didn't exhaust themselves. Why? Because they had the practices of prayer and contemplation that could sustain them for a lifetime, not for six months, not for two years, but for a lifetime. So that's how important that is. Yeah. So like I, I, I hear you saying about, um, you know, that your mystical experience, it's changing, it's changing your mind. It's also leading to repentance though. Um, and then there's this, this, uh, kind of connection to endurance, um, and speaking calmly, uh, yet forcefully into situations that, that need that voice. Yeah. Um, and, and so just kind of following up, um, in your, experience and in your your uh you know your your contemplative practices and and what that does for you what how that helps you um how how have you been able to to kind of manage that like again you 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 uh you alluded to kind of the angry militant nonviolent protester kind right. of mentality how do you how do you balance that that <laughs> which i'll thinking. just say quite clearly at the moment yeah um, that i actually think we need more of uh, i just want to throw yeah. that in um i think we need m- more anger and i think we need more militancy it's just we need them to be expressed in ways that um uh, look like christ and i guess that's what i'm 
that's the balance i'm i'm wondering about and how, how I, to... I agree with that uh from jared's perspective if Here's... jared's doing it then yeah that like because and jared's doing it and he should yeah, yeah exactly uh, i'm not an activist mm -hmm. i'm a pastor mm -hmm. uh and and there is a difference in that uh, i am not generally confronting structures of violent power head on rather i'm attempting to build a community of people that are awakened to the fact that jesus calls us to follow him in the ways of peace let me tell two stories amen um i gotta decide well right here look at this <laughs> i don't know i don't think jared can see it can you see me jared andrew can yeah i can see see that coffee i'm, I'm sorry bv you, you you'll have to uh describe it for I'm me gonna, I, I have i have, you have a way with words i trust you <laughs> yeah okay and i'm going to tell you about this coffee cup this coffee cup uh you, you probably you can't read it here andrew but but that's it says joint chiefs of staff hmm. this is a coffee cup that comes from the masters of war you know the joint chiefs of staff in the pentagon here's the story there's a guy he's in the cia he's a young man uh, he is, uh, I can tell you his first name, his name is Josh, and he is in Afghanistan. This is maybe five, six years ago, and he is directing drone strikes hmm. upon, you know, suspected Taliban hideouts and that sort of thing. And that's what he's doing. That's his job. CIA operative officer directing drone strikes. While he's there, when he's working out at the military base that he's staying at when he works out he's listening i still don't know exactly why he's listening to my sermons and uh and during the course of several months listening to my sermons he arrives at a place where he is convinced that he can no longer be faithful to jesus and continue to engage in this and so he went to his commanding officer and resigned. It's, I just can't do this anymore. Uh, I believe I'm to, call, I'm, I'm to follow Jesus, who is the Prince of Peace. And well, part of, part of his dismissal involved going to Washington and having a final debriefing with the Joint Chiefs, Chiefs of Staff. And while he was there, he, he took one of these mugs. I, I guess he stole it or something. I don't know. And he brought it to like this souvenir of, of prevailing one little incremental step at a time against the empire. <laughs> I love this coffee cup. I just really do. It's, to me, it's like a, like a trophy, right? You understand? Mm -hmm, yeah. And uh, now, of course, on the one hand, someone replaced him. You know, I think they're probably still able to conduct drone strikes, but uh, I can't necessarily get my mind around how do I change the world. Uh, that's, that sounds like an exhausting task. What I can do is help gather and form a community of people who represent the world as already changed by Christ. Mm -hmm. And okay, that's one story. The second one happened just two Sundays ago. I was standing in our, our foyer afterwards meeting people and a woman who is uh, from Tajikistan, she's a, a Muslim convert, she's a Christian, grew up Muslim, now a Christian, 
and she was talking with me. She's been trying to get, she has a green card, but she's been trying to get U.S. citizenship. And she was right at the point of being able to finally gain U.S. citizenship. But part of the U.S. citizenship process was um, you, you, have to, you have to take an oath that you will be willing to take up arms in defense of the United States. And she's telling me this story, and she says, I told him, no, I'm not going to kill anybody for you. I, I can't do that. I mean, I'll be a good person, but I can't do that. And uh, as she's telling me this, someone overhearing the conversation, another woman who is a, I, kinda, I can't remember what country she's from. She's from a Caribbean country, and I'm not sure which one, but she just recently got her citizenship. And she's listening, and she's trying to, you know, trying to tell my, well, just, you know, sort of wink and say, uh, yeah, okay, but you know, they're never going to ask you to do that. And Maya, this is the woman from Tajikistan, she said, what church do you go to? Haven't you been listening to these sermons? Don't you know? And I was so proud of her. Uh, I was so proud of her. That's and great. we're going to try to still try to help her find a way, you know, that she can become a U.S. Yeah, citizen. Yeah. There are ways, in fact, but she didn't know of them. Yeah. Um, but see, those are those, that's my, uh, I'm not saying I won't ever be involved in various activist, um, uh, endeavors probably will. Cause one of my great fears is I go to the judgment seat of Christ and Jesus says, Zon, what's up? I mean, you lived all those years in the empire and you never got arrested. It's a slippery slope. Yeah. Yeah. And I think one of the things that comes up uh, for me and um, Andrew Wiles so quick to, to jump in. Um, uh, BZ, I want to ask about what are the greatest challenges to becoming a peacemaker today? Um, and uh, yes, people call me an activist all, all the time, um, but I'm also a pastor and BZ, I'm asking from the context of my nation's capital where last night we had our budget handed down and Australia has made the decision um, to spend as much money annually in positioning itself to be an arms dealer as it does on relieving uh, uh, poverty um, in particularly our region, but the world. So, so literally um, we are turning uh, plowshares into swords on a national level. And, um, in terms of the, the nuns that I've been with this morning, as well as like incredible Christian leaders who are out of um, uh, the Pentecostal and Anglican and uh, Baptists and Church of the Christ and uh, you know, Uniting Church world, what are the greatest challenges for becoming a peacemaker today if we're actually aware that this isn't a journey um, merely around personal piety? Um, but that we are living um, in a world of, of such despair where so many of our nations are kind of giving up on the experiment of democracy and looking for authoritarian leaders who will be new messiahs to offer us um, a kingdom that doesn't come through a cross. What, what are these challenges um, for well, becoming peacemakers? Powerful, isn't it? Totally. Um, by beast, I mean, you know, I read the book of Revelation as a prophetic critique of the Roman Empire and a strident call for Christians not to be complicit in the empire, 
but to be completely faithful in their loyalty to the alternative emperor who is Christ, um, and thus a critique of all such empires. And, and while we're talking, let me let me let me give a brief definition for my own purposes anyway, of what I mean by empire, because we can have this conversation, Andrew, Jared Beasy, and we kind of maybe have an idea what we mean. Other people might think, empire, what do you mean by that? Here's what I mean. I mean, rich, powerful nations that believe they have a divine right to rule other nations and a manifest destiny to shape history. That's an empire. Mm. Uh, God loves nations with their ethnicity and their diversity and all of that. Uh, God is opposed to empires, and that's a consistent theme, literally from Genesis to Revelation. That's not an exaggeration. Amen. It's all the way through Scripture, very pronounced, though, especially in what looks like Exodus, parts of Isaiah, certainly uh, Luke, Acts, Revelation especially. But it's, it's there. The, the thread is all the way through the Bible. Uh, God is opposed to empire because of the massive structural evil that they represent and the amount of suffering they bring into the world. And God is also opposed to empire because when empires claim for themselves divine right to rule other nations, manifest destiny to shape history, is the very thing that God has promised to his son. So empires set themselves up to oppose the reign of Christ. Uh, for me, the great challenge in the United States is that uh, American evangelicals are so wed to the empire that to begin to challenge that is going to create a, a lot of angry uh, blowback. Yeah. And for me, mm -hmm. then, not to be just drawn into that cycle of retaliatory anger. Uh, but to continually just keep pointing to Jesus, challenging them. Uh, you know, if you if you want to if you want to use the Bible, then I'm going to out Bible you. <laughs> and, and but but really, it's it's the entanglement of a form of Christendom with the American Empire that is a huge challenge. And you know, since we're talking here, uh, the the age of Trump. Uh, how long has it been now? 50 years? Is that right? No, I think it's been like a, <laughs> it's, it's been what, a year and a few months. Everyone I talk to, this is the word they eventually reach for. It's exhausting. Mm -hmm. It's just exhausting because it's one thing. It's not one thing after another. It's 10 things falling on top of each other every single day. And if you, if and so you have to be careful to tend to your soul. You, you, you can become outraged, and I understand that. But, but if you just feed perpetually the outrage machine, you're going to exhaust yourself. And so there has, yeah. to, there has to be some way that we can uh, – here's, here's been my theme song for the last year and four months, five months, whatever it is. Um, Bruce Coburn's Lovers in a Dangerous Time. I don't know if you know that song. Yep. Just, 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 you know, the title, Lovers in a Dangerous Time. I mean, I did, that's, that's what I, you know, all the way back that night in November 2016, I thought, oh, okay, now we're going to have to be lovers in a dangerous time. Yes, yes, in, in resistance. Yes, in offering strident, prophetic challenges. 
but still always based in love. Uh, not just protesters in dangerous time, not just reactionaries in dangerous time, not just resistors in dangerous time, but lovers in dangerous time. So that's a challenge yeah, to, yeah, good, to respond in love and embody love. Um, mm. So, so then given these challenges um, and just the whole context that you described and what it does to people, um, I, you know, as I'm sure is often the case for you too, and, and you've alluded to this before, we have a lot of people in our lives who can't quite wrap their minds around nonviolence, and they reject uh, genuine peacemaking and love of enemies. So I wonder if you could help us out a bit by uh, maybe giving us a, a recent idea. Um, it's better if it's recent, doesn't have to be, but a recent idea or or a, an argument related to peacemaking and embracing nonviolence that really helped you think more clearly about these things. Um, maybe a, an aha moment or something that really clicked for you that, that helped you uh, strengthen your commitment uh, to loving your enemies uh, that, uh, that you could share with us. You know, we were just, uh, my wife and I, have been for what is it now 20 years been leading um, Christian pilgrimages in the Holy Land Israel Palestine and we've been doing that for a long time now and it's a labor of love we love doing that and we were over there during Lent and I uh, I sort of I sort of tried to form the entire pilgrimage around trying to actually follow Jesus in that final journey from Galilee to Jerusalem. Um, and, and, and I mean, we, we, as much as we could, we, we just embodied that. I mean, so, so when I talk about Jesus making his triumphal entry and choosing to ride the donkey and not the war horse, which is a bit of theater, and, 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 and uh, deliberately uh, reaching for Zachariah's prophecy that someday a king will come that will not be just another dude on a horse because they're always on a war horse. <laughs> and so, so, I mean, I'm talking about that on the top of Mount Olives. And then what we do is we retrace those steps. We walk into the city like that. And, and, and going over that, over about a period of about nine days, step by step by step until that very interesting moment when Jesus is before Pilate and Pilate is trying to understand this man and he said and Pilate's really only interested he's not interested in any of these theological issues he doesn't care about that he cuts right to the point so are, are you a king are you claiming to be a king you know, we, Rome will tell you who's a king or not. All the kings are our client kings. There's one king, there's Caesar, and everybody else is our client king. So are, are you claiming to be a king? Because we didn't make you a king. And Jesus says, yeah, it's, it's as you say. Uh, but my kingdom is not from the system. It's not from this world. Mm -hmm. okay? it, it's not from this. But for this reason, I've come into the world that I might bear witness to the truth. Everyone, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And then famously, Pilate, you know, what is truth? And then there's a, a, uh, 
Jesus and Pilate are parted. Jesus is scourged by the battalion there in the Antonia Fortress. And then he's brought back to Jesus, uh, severely beaten, and still wearing some of the uh, garb of a king being mocked, crown of thorns and all of that. And Pilate famously says, you know, Ece homo, behold the man. And Pilate continues his interrogation, but now Jesus remains silent. He won't, he won't say anything. And Pilate's frustrated by this. And he says, don't you know? Don't you know? I have power to kill you, and I have power to release you. That's the moment when Pilate answers his own question. What is truth? For Pilate, the truth is simply this. The world is run by authoritarian strongmen. And the sooner you understand this, the sooner we can, you know, get on with things. But you're, And Pilate seems to be offering that. If you can simply acknowledge that this is the truth, that the world is organized around an axis of power that's enforced by violence, if you'll just say, I understand that's the way the world is, then I can let you go. And Jesus remains silent. When Pilate continues to kind of uh, provoke Caiaphas, for whom he has no real love or respect, um, has to work with him, but doesn't like him. And he says, "Oh, so you want me to? So you want me to? You want me to crucify your king?" And Caiaphas says, "We have no king but Caesar." That 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 is a stunning moment mm-hmm. where yeah. the Jewish high priest repudiates everything the Hebrew prophets ever stood for. But it's a, it's an act of of Truth-telling. He takes the mask off for a moment. He says, look, look, Pilate, uh, I understand how the world is arranged. It's all about power. It's all about power. Now, I gain access to power through religion. And so I say certain things and I do certain things. But uh, right now, I'm just going to tell you, I understand that the world is organized around an axis of power enforced by violence. And we have no king but Caesar because he has the biggest sword and he's the one that can uh, win the wars, all of that sort of stuff. Now, I'm going to put my mask back on. I'll go back to my religious game, but I just want you to know we're on the same page. Uh, that, that whole drama is still in play today, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And I see it so clearly that 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 um we are so easily seduced by taking the shortcut if we could just get caesar's sword if we could just get the means of violent coercion well of course we would we would use it for good uh if we could just get the ring of power you know one ring to rule them all one ring to find them one ring to draw them back and in the darkness bind them you know however that goes um I just see that the church, if it's going to be an advocate of peace, an embodiment of peace, a witness of peace, it is going to have to rethink everything pertaining to how we understand power. And that yep. in the kingdom of Christ, it's not obtaining Caesar's sword in order to do what we think is good with it. It's a complete renunciation of it. Hmm. Um, this, this, though, broaches upon 
of political theology. And I'm not a Christian anarchist. I'm using a technical term. Uh, mm. But I'm constantly tempted to be one. And I, and I have friends that, that do em, embrace that theological posture. And it, for me, it's a temptation. But I resist the temptation because I think it's too irresponsible. But at the same time, mm. they have a proper instinct that ultimately the way that the church helps inaugurate the kingdom of God within society cannot be by the means of just beating the other team in the scrabble for Caesar's sword. Mm -hmm. uh, these, these are difficult things. Uh, so I think oftentimes we feel that enacting a faithful presence just isn't enough. But I think as I look at how Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, how it, most of his metaphors, they're not militant. They're not violent. They are bread rising. They are crops growing. They're a, mm. a, a, a prodigal son coming home and being welcomed. It's, it's day laborers being given more than what we think they deserve because, no, they do deserve a day's wage. And it, it's pictures like that, not... Um, the shortcut. I think Stanley Hirewall says war is impatience. Mm -hmm. Hmm. I don't know. I'm kind of, I, I, I sort of say I'm just rambling. I'm not just rambling. I, I, I know what I'm saying here, <laughs> but distill it into a succinct, you know, dot, da, dot, da, 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 da. I can't, I'm having a hard time doing it. Maybe it's just, yeah. I'm too tired. <laughs> <laughs> not at all. Um, DJ, your, your rambling is more, pleasant to, to listen to than most of my sermons. So uh, um, you, you ramble, you ramble. Um, BZ, you are a wonderful pastor and um, uh, you've been a wonderful pastor and friend to, to me, um, as has uh, Perry, who's also an incredible Perry's, Perry's spiritual director. She's, <laughs> she's phenomenal, isn't she? Like, yes, she um, is. I, I love you both dearly and I, I wanted to offer um or give you the opportunity to offer to those who are, are listening in and seeking to in, embark on this uh peacemaking journey um towards seeking first um god's reign and god's healing justice um uh, any words of wisdom or, or advice um and that sounds very generic so um Andrew doesn't know this, but I'd like to throw out something that often comes up for me in prayer. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, Philip Berrigan was an important influence upon me. Dorothy Day said um, mm -hmm. uh, he was central for uh, her um, coming to her own convictions around nonviolence and a rejection of just war. And Thomas Merton has often uh, been an incredibly important influence upon me as well and reading them both around the age 2021 20, and what that did to me and both their writings both in in Merton's journal in 68 he talks about how Philip Berrigan had become a bit theatrical and Philip Berrigan in Fighting the Lamb's War his autobiography he has this word of correction to Merton saying that Jesus wasn't a monk he was an activist as a pastor if, if you were to offer pastoral care, uh, and you can't simply say I'd get Perry to do it, but if, if you were to offer pastoral care between these tensions that we hold in ourselves, these archetypes of um, uh, uh, 
Holy Monday and turning over tables and what it is to um, uh, go away from the crowds and find a, a quiet place to pray. What would you offer this tension between Merton and Philip Berrigan? What, what pastoral words and how can that help us on this journey of, of becoming peacemakers? I think you have to have room for both. Um, mm. I don't, I don't, you can't pit one against the other. And you can't say, this mm -hmm. one is right and this one is wrong. The contemplative monk, no, that's wrong. No, the, the hit the streets, theatrical activist, protester, that's wrong. No, the, I, I think we have to become somewhat uh, aware of ourselves and what our own calling is and become comfortable with that. I don't think it can be something that that is pressed upon us from the outside. But notice we're talking about Philip Berrigan and Thomas Merton. These are two exceptional souls. These are yeah. highly gifted people. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, both of them, I have nothing but the highest admiration for read both of them. I've read Merton more, but I'm, I've read some Berrigan. I'm familiar with his story and nothing but, you know, a salute. Uh, but as a pastor, I'm not pastoring, for the most part, Thomas Merton's and Philip Berrigan's. The people <laughs> that are sure. living their life, but are being formed in such a way as when that green card is right there in front of them that they want so dearly because it means a lot. I mean, not the green card, the citizenship, the U.S. citizenship, when they say, oh, yes, and you, you have to take up arms. Uh, you have to be willing to take up arms on behalf of the United States. She says, well, I can't do that. Mm. Um, She's not a Thomas Merton contemplative. She's not a Philip Berrigan activist, but she is a Jesus follower. And in mm. a significant moment, she was faithful to the lamb. And I don't know which category that falls into. I don't know that, that you can assign it. Uh, you know, I would say be careful of the temptation to do some big thing for God. Sometimes yeah. we yeah. get up in the morning and say, I'm going to try to do some little thing for God today. <laughs> because sometimes in the temptation to do a big thing for God, the big becomes a bit of an idol. Or if, and that's maybe too strong a language, but it becomes a distraction. It becomes... Mm. Um, a goal that maybe shouldn't be the goal for it to be the big thing for God. Uh, so, so what if, be open to the idea that God would say, yeah, today I don't want you to do anything big. I'd like you to do a few little things really well and trust that in the whole grand scope of things, that's going to be enough. So I would say something like that. I think within there too, there's this, um, there's a, there's, you know, you're talking about, uh, Philip Berrigan, Merton, both being uh, exceptional. Um, Jesus is pretty exceptional too. <laughs> and and, and the whole God thing going on. Yeah, too. exactly. And yet he's he's our model, but right. he's fully divine. He's fully human, and we're fully neither. Um, 
you know, we're, 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 we're still, we're still progressing. That's good, Andrew. That'll um, <laughs> and, and so, you know, you speak about, you know, you, you, you talked about how Jesus was silent before Pilate. Um, so how do you, how do you speak truth to power while being silent? at the same time and and i think it has something like we're talking about the activist and and the monastic right you kind of have this human and divine when, when, when i say that i'm not an activist yeah. uh, i think that's probably a fair assessment but i'm certainly not uh playing it safe <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah yeah i have been quite outspoken i do more what i do through the role of a pastor preacher writer uh, trying to form people in something other. Um, hey, BZ, you know, if I could write, I'd do that instead, right? That Jesus does flip over the table. I love that. I mean, I mean, I love preaching that story, uh, I, as I do pretty much every year when we get around that season. Uh, the it, it isn't the cleansing of the temple; it's a prophetic protest within the temple. Yeah. Um, yeah. Was it cleansing the temple? But on the other hand, I mean, so so there, there's a place to do that. But Jesus doesn't, it's interesting, Jesus didn't apparently ask anyone else to join him in doing that. There'll be those that are compelled, and there'll be this sudden inspiration, and we're going to do this. But I don't see, Jesus doesn't say, you know, Join me in flipping the tables and and making a whip and driving out the cattle. He does say, "Take up your cross and follow me." So a, a willingness <laughs> to suffer, a, a willingness yeah. to be faithful to what an embodiment of this alternative kingdom looks like. Everyone is called to that, and I think it's going to look different in many different lives but 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 i know you here but i want our i want our listeners to know this too don't hear this as you know i don't fully support jared mckinnon shane claiborne and people that are out there doing these crazy things and getting arrested i love that and in fact the rebel in me thinks i would just like to do that just but i'm not even sure i'm i'm spiritual enough yet because i think i'd get angry <laughs> although although i do have a little mm. i've got to be careful who's going to listen to this but um i'm pretty passionate about the whole daca situation because these are people yeah. I know in my yeah. church i mean i know them i know yeah. their names and we've already had some that are have been deported i gotta tell one more story i'll get to it but let me let me finish this because my stories are better than anything else <laughs> um so, so um, I told I told our leadership team I said uh, I, I don't see how I'm going to make it through the Trump administration without getting arrested, especially over these DACA situations here. And they're only responsible. Well, well, try to do it on a Monday, but uh, <laughs> but yeah, that's right. <laughs> but, but the Department of Homeland Security offices here are in North Kansas City, uh, where my brother is the prosecutor. <laughs> and so that would just add all kinds of <laughs> drama to it. Uh, one other story, and again, I'm going to be cryptic here a little bit. Um, I was preaching, this is in the last, it's, I don't know, it's within a year, probably closer to six months ago. 
And I was preaching out of Matthew 25 and the sheep and the goats and how Jesus judges the nations by how they treat the impoverished and the indigent, the immigrant and the imprisoned and, and that sort of thing. Uh, and after church, a couple, a young couple came up to my wife. They didn't approach me, but they, they went to Perry because Perry is, you know, less threatening, I think. <laughs> and, and they said, well, we, re we really had a problem with that sermon. Oh, well, what was your problem? Well, you know, are you saying we shouldn't have borders? Are you saying that we shouldn't enforce immigration laws? And, you know, it was kind of the thing you would usually hear occasionally. And uh, Perry's, you know, trying to deflect most of it. And then they said, well, don't you know what we do? Don't you know who we are? Perry says, I don't know who we are. Well, we're the ICE agents for this town. I mean, for St. Joseph, that's actually where I met. We're the ICE agents here. Mm -hmm. And uh, Perry said, well, you know, let's, let's have coffee. Let's, the, the long story made short is it's been going on a year, and they're still there. Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. And I have had the experience of serving an undocumented immigrant communion immediately followed by the ICE agents. Mm. I mean, literally, yeah. I mean, this, we're a pretty big church, and that it would be back to back like that. Mm. And I'm thinking, yeah. this is the kingdom of Christ, isn't it? Amen. Um, oh, I, I And, of course, I have strong opinions on this. I'm not saying, like, well, there's one side is, you know, let's just deport them all on the other side. I, I, know I have a very strong opinion. And, uh, but I, I'm seeing the kingdom creep up on people that are somewhat entangled in some of the nefarious agendas of the empire. And... Yeah. Even those of Caesar's household are coming to believe. I think Paul would use language like that. So that's, Amen. Yeah. I love that that's happening. Both Perry and Brian have, have stayed at First Home Project. And uh, the reality of spending my days living with 15 recently arrived asylum seekers and refugees is that it teaches you to read scripture differently. Mm -hmm. And the reality of having those people in your church and people being opening up the Holy Scriptures uh, together is that our peacemaking goes from being a privileged expression of um, my desire for purity with some uh, information about what's happening in the world to something that might actually cost us in solidarity with those whom Jesus was found amongst. And that's a very yeah. different journey. And if we can, if we can, um, create communities that can have that kind of maturity where we love people into those kind of spaces and hold those kind of spaces, um, we can actually offer the, the world something. And BZ, I just want to thank you for uh, the way you do that, the way that you model that. Um, uh, not, not personally, just the friend that um, you, you have been in your encouragement um, to, to me, uh, but how you do that for so many around the world. And, and we, we love you and we're thankful for you and we pray for you. So thank you. Thank you, Jared. That's very kind. Thank you. Yeah. So I guess we'll, uh, I hate to do this, but we'll, we'll cut it uh, here and uh, we'll end it here. And so, uh, yeah, thanks for, for sharing everything you did with us today, Brian. Um, we really appreciate you coming on 
our podcast here and, and imparting your wisdom and insights, helping us all to become uh, better peacemakers in a world that seems to be uh, uh, increasing in its complexity. And, and so again, lovers in a dangerous you, time. Huh? For sure. For sure. Got to kick at the darkness till it bleeds daylight. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. Exactly. Amen. Hey, thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe on either iTunes, SoundCloud, or our webpage, irpj.org backslash podcast.